When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This is a Tory leadership special featuring Tory MPs Sam Gima and Rory Stewart. Rory, who's definitely thrown his hat into the ring and, well... Um, I won't ruin anything about uh, any of the conversations we have here, but both men were absolutely mesmerising um, in slightly different ways. They've both got their own charisma. They both talk about politics in a way um, that perhaps isn't being reflected in the leadership contest at the moment. Uh, there's definitely a desire to get away from Brexit. I got a sense from both of them that the way that politics has gone is is not... Um, the way they would have liked it to. And it just shows, I think, at this very early stage in the Tory leadership contest, that Brexit will absolutely dominate. But at this stage, that there is a there is a bit of space for people who just want to talk about um, other things uh, and with a, maybe a different tone and a different approach. I won't trample on anything any of them say, but um, th- they were both absolutely fantastic. So... I, I, there is no more to say. Oh, firstly, thanks to everyone who came to see me on tour. It's finished now. I finished at the Bloomsbury Theatre last Saturday. It was an amazing way to finish a tour. Thank you to all of you who came. It was the most enjoyable uh, tour I've ever done. So um, my new show is uh, going to be uh, premiering at the Edinburgh Festival, Brexit Pursued by a Bear. Um, yeah, I'm running out of Brexit puns. And um, it's now on sale from the 31st of July to the 25th of August. You can get tickets through my website, mattford.com, or if you go to edfringe.com and search for me on there. That's now on sale. So we'll be back at the Edinburgh Festival throughout the summer with a brand new show, Brexit Pursued by a Bear. But for now, I will leave you in the hands of Sam Gima and Rory Stewart. Oh, oh thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the show. Welcome to the political party. Ladies and gentlemen, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yay! Welcome back. Uh, regulars, give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Excellent. Welcome uh, newcomers. Uh, obviously uh, a fascinating set of uh, European election results uh, at, the, uh, at the weekend. Uh, Theresa May has resigned as Prime Minister as well. Uh, are people sad that Theresa May is going to be going? No sympathy at all for Theresa May. Um, I thought it was interesting on the day she announced she was going to go that uh, a lot of Tory MPs were tweeting, uh, you know, um, I just want to tweet my respect for the Prime Minister and she's been very stoic. A lot of tributes coming in from people who for the past three years have been uh, attacking her. I was quite interested in seeing people effectively say, I, I want to pay full respect to the way the Prime Minister has handled me calling her a stupid bitch for the past three years. <laughs> She's been very, very solid throughout the whole thing. Uh, fascinating watching uh, the, the, um, the effect on the public, actually. I was watching it live on telly, as well as following it live on Twitter. And about halfway through the Prime Minister's resignation, people started complaining because BBC One wasn't showing a scheduled Homes Under the Hammer. <laughs> Uh, obviously, if these people would have stayed watching, they'd have seen that a lovely central London townhouse is about to come on the market. Um, so it's uh, interesting watching all that. Boris Johnson on the day said, uh, I want to pay tribute to the Prime Minister. Today is not the day uh, to attack her in any way. Uh, the, uh, the inference being that tomorrow definitely is. <laughs> 
Hold off for now, we'll get stuck in tomorrow, lads. Uh, of course, Boris himself, it's been announced today, has been summoned to appear in court, uh, which is great news, which raises the prospect that um, he may well have to fight the leadership contest from jail. <laughs> Like the start of porridge, Boris de Fefefel Johnson. Uh, I mean, well, the debates would be fantastic. You're joining us live from Belmarsh for the first Tory leadership debate, please. Uncuff the candidates. I mean, the handover would be fantastic. The Sky News copter capturing the moment that the current Prime Minister leaves the palace in, uh, in a Bentley and the new Prime Minister arrives in a Group 4 Securitas van. <laughs> before being whisked off back to Wormwood Scrubs. Uh, the Labour Party being investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission for alleged anti-Semitism. Uh, the party said that it was part of a worrying trend of rising anti-Semitism in the UK and Europe, uh, mainly amongst their own members. Uh, but the, <laughs> the party said it's done everything it can to stem the tide of uh, anti-Semitism in Europe by losing 10 seats <coughs> in the European elections. So, uh, that at least will have some effect on that. And um, they, they tried to distract from the story by um, expelling Alistair Campbell from the Labour Party. I mean, if, if pick on all the people, to pick on probably the world's current most infamous spin doctor, who seemed a little bit stupid, and it's, it's led to the hashtag trending on Twitter, hashtag expel me now. Which is, um, I mean, really is, she's, she, he, Corbyn has effectively lost the classroom when people are asking to be expelled from, <laughs> from the school itself. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you may be uh, expecting Ken Clark tonight. Uh, we announced this on Twitter yesterday. There's been a change to tonight's lineup. Ken Clark uh, sadly couldn't make the show this evening, so he is now doing the show in September. So, in his place, of course, I had to curate something special. So tonight we have a very special double header with two Conservative MPs. Our first guest tonight is Sam Gima, who's a rising uh, Conservative star. And in the second half, I'll be joined by one of the 11 Tory leadership candidates. He has been a viral sensation. <laughs> I collared him live at Kew Gardens. That's right, in the second half, I'll be joined by Rory Stewart, uh, who is who's on the, Well, absolutely, that is the correct response. Uh, very excited. He's on his way down from Wigan, uh, presumably speaking Farsi to some people in the streets or whatever it is, whatever it is he's been doing uh, on his tour of uh, the UK. We're very excited to have both of them here tonight. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our first guest has been an MP since 2010, a rising Conservative start, someone who, if the fate of the Tory party uh, around the time of the referendum had been different, perhaps would have been standing in this leadership election. He resigned from Theresa May's government towards the end of last year in uh, rebellion against the current direction uh, regarding Brexit. He's all for a people's vote. Please give a huge welcome to Sam Gima. <laughs> Hello. Sam, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for, for, for agreeing to do the show. First and Thank foremost, um, do you feel sorry for Theresa May? Having, re having had resigned from her government, do you now feel sorry for her? I don't now feel sorry for her, but I do acknowledge that she did her best. I mean, I re... I re, I re uh, <laughs> okay, you've warmed up. I'm not, I'm not, let me warm up. No, I, I resigned because I looked at the withdrawal agreement after having accepted the referendum result. Fine working as a minister, helping implement Brexit, withdrawal agreement landed, and I just thought, this is not in the interest of the country, right? This doesn't work. And um, I had to look at myself and say, do I just 
hold my nose and go along with it, which is what I knew a lot of my colleagues did, or do I say something? And I just thought, kind of, this is the biggest vote I'm going to be involved in in my career in politics. I might as well actually be true to myself. And, um, and you know, a friend of mine said, if you're going to keep your powder dry over Brexit, then what is the powder for? <laughs> right? <laughs> Was that so, Boris? Or was uh, he talking about something else? <laughs> <laughs> so so um, I, I, I resigned. But in that sense, um, my position and the reasons why I resigned are actually not very different to, say, John Redwood's reasons for opposing the withdrawal agreement. Um, it's just that our answers to what you do next are different. My answer to it is, OK, if this withdrawal agreement doesn't work, and I can bore you with uh, all my reasons why not, um, but I don't think that's why you're here tonight, to be bored. <laughs> and um, then maybe the answer is we go back to the people, because I also couldn't see anything getting through Parliament. You know, if you're on the John Redwood side of the argument, you're like, well, I don't like the withdrawal agreement. The answer is let's leave without a deal. And my view was we never told people that, right? We never told people that vote leave and you have to invoke the spirit of Dunkirk and all of that. And if we ask people and they say that's what they want, that's fine. But um, that's not what we told them. So that's how I arrived at where I am. In terms of Theresa May, she did her best in the sense that she was given a very difficult hand. But she didn't play it very well, did she? That's true. I mean, what, what was she like to serve under as a prime minister? Um, <clears throat> you didn't really have much chit-chat with TM. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... Um, so I'd, I'd, uh, I'd been quite close to David Cameron, right? I'd, be, I'd been his parliamentary private secretary, which is um, so his eyes and ears um, in the Commons, which is a great job to have, anyone who's thinking of going into politics. If you can wangle a job close to the PM, you know, in the Downing Street meetings, you know, every one of your colleagues thinks you've got the ear of the Prime Minister. I had so many friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, suddenly when I moved on from the job, a lot of them have, uh, um, have moved on as well. <laughs> but you could, you, you could chat about stuff with him. He loves politics. He's into the gossip of politics. You know, what's going on in the tea rooms, you know. What's, you know? But uh, I wasn't that close to Theresa May, but I never really thought you could have that kind of conversation with her. You know, it was sort of, um, everything was on a needs-must basis. And, um, but I don't think that was just my experience. I think it's probably the experience of a lot of my colleagues as well. But that, that's his style, very closed, very guarded, um, different type of politician. So when you're, you're PPS to David Cameron, what was your relationship with him like? And what did he expect of you? Because the role is, is there to be defined by the holder and by the, by the, by the Prime Minister. Um, but he said, you, Sam, I just want you to go over there. You find out what they're bloody well saying. You know, I just want to know, you know. Well, they, yeah, yes. Um, what are they up to? There's, there's buggers over there. Hello, Dave. <laughs> I'm not sure you'll see him out in public anytime soon, but... Yeah, um... yeah. You need a few more plums in your voice. <laughs> no, here's, um, here's I a mean, number of things. So firstly, I helped prepare him for Prime Minister's questions. And I had to play the role of Ed Miliband, who was the leader of the Labour Party at the time. So that was my elevated status. Pretend you're Ed Miliband across the dispatch box and ask him a question that Ed Miliband would ask him. So I spent a lot of time looking into Ed Miliband's life, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to try and think of the killer question Ed Miliband would ask. So that was one thing. So every Tuesday and Wednesday, and he was very diligent about it, helped prepare him for that. 
The other thing is obviously you, I'm the, I was the link between him and the parliamentary party. So if, it, if any MP wanted to see him or had a problem or wanted to communicate something to him, you know, they will tell me and, you know, when I sit down with him, I'll go through it. And then kind of you realise that some of your colleagues are quite, you know, can be quite fast. You know, so they'll tell you something, but they won't tell you that you've also written to him. So if you don't go and tell him because you kind of think that's not important, you then find out two weeks later that he received a letter from the same person who gave you the impression that you are the only person they've told. <laughs> so you, you have to be an honest broker in that job. Whoever, whichever wing of the party people are from, make sure that they have access to the prime minister and their concerns are dealt with. What else did he want? He always wanted to know who was plotting. Who, yeah, <laughs> always. And this, this was, you know, it, you, you forget. I mean, at the time, we were in coalition with the Liberal Democrats. And it felt like a really tumultuous time. But you kind of look back and... <laughs> <laughs> it was all about... We're, just, we're worried about what Nick Clegg and Vince Cable were up to. You know? <laughs> Like, compared to what we are going through now, it's, um, that looks like child's play. But um, he was very focused on managing the coalition relations. He hadn't had a coalition for 70 years. And um, people didn't expect the coalition to last. I think the government was... Um, it, it worked as a very different government because everything was agreed between David Cameron, George Osborne, Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, who was Chief Secretary to Treasury. So these four people got together and thrashed out what the government was going to do. Then they had to sell it to their respective parties. So you had a situation where David Cameron was always trying to sell policy to his party after it had been decided, mm. and the party wanted to be part of the decision, not be told about it after it had been decided with the Liberal Democrats. So a lot of policy areas, there was always a bit of a bumpy ride, and he was always worried that um, you know, one day one of his old Etonian mates would probably mount a leadership challenge against him. <laughs> and um, my job was to um, make sure that if there was such a challenge, we knew about it as early as possible and diffused it. And was it, was it just Boris he was worried about, or were there other candidates that he was asking to <laughs> check up on? Well, he never explicitly asked me to check up on him. He's, he's a bit too smart for that. And he's, he's one of these um, people who never wanted to reveal any sense of vulnerability from his side. So he's never going to, he was never going to say, what about this person, right? But he was always wanted to know. I mean, Boris wasn't in Parliament then. So the big issue for Boris is how Boris was going to move into Parliament after being Mayor of London. That was the big issue for Boris. Um, within Parliament, there was all, I mean, there are two groups of people, you know. A lot of the ex-military people in the Conservative Party are always on manoeuvres. And I remember, him <laughs> saying, I remember him saying to me once, um, what is this about all these ex-soldiers? I thought they had been trained to like, listen and act upon instructions, <laughs> but they were always planning coups uh, <laughs> against him. And if it wasn't them, then it was definitely um, uh, one, someone from Eton who was um, having a pop. Um, <laughs> But um, we ma he managed it well. I mean, on, on a serious note, you know, he had you know, not just a coalition to manage, but you're dealing with the, um, the aftershocks of the financial crisis. You're trying to take the country through um, fiscal consolidation. That is the technical term. The political term is austerity. I don't like using the political term. <laughs> and um, it, was quite, it was quite a difficult time um, to go through all of that. And... For me, who was new to politics, I hadn't worked 
in Conservative Central Office. I hadn't been a councillor before. I had fought one council seat um, and lost in Kilburn. You know, having a ringside seat as part observer, part participant um, was absolutely amazing. I mean, the big moment, I think, during that time was the, Syria, the first Syria vote. Mm -hmm. And um, that, mm -hmm. you know, unusually a prime minister, I mean, he did a number of things. He called parliament back from recess. I found out where a lot of my, holiday, my, my colleagues go on holiday um, <laughs> when they had to call in to say they'll be arriving late for the vote. And uh, strange places. And um, then he had to agree with, or he agreed with President Obama what his position was going to be, tried to get Ed Miliband to agree with him. And Ed kind of agreed till Ban Ki-moon said, give peace a chance. And Ed used that as a reason to back away. But it was, a, it was unprecedented for a prime minister to seek um, authorisation from the Commons uh, for military action in that form. And he lost the vote. And that night, I was, he was concerned about what that could do to his premiership, but also what that meant for Syria and um, Assad. And it's one of those moments that, you know, I was very junior at the time, you look back and think, if the Commons had actually voted for military action, the course of what happened in Syria would have been very different. But um, someone who is not, I'm not always a fan of, um, but Piers Morgan, I think, um, got it right. He said, you know, David Cameron just got punished for what Tony Blair did. Because of the shadow of Tony Blair in Iraq, the Labour Party couldn't bring itself to do what I think was right at the time. And Ed Miliband, obviously, having run on an anti-Iraq ticket, couldn't get his troops, wasn't willing to get his troops to deliver. So that was my, my early years. There was, there was a version of the story at the time was that, was that Ed Miliband had agreed verbally with David Cameron to support him, and then him and Ed Balls had kind of realised they could defeat the government on the floor of the House of Commons. And I remember a quote that was attributed to Nicholas Soames at the time of Ed was Miliband, it? that he was a, do you remember this? A, a complete... Was it a definitely fruity, whatever you think. Oh, yeah, 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 it was very fruity. It was, um, <laughs> it, he was a complete twat and a copper-bottom cunt. <laughs> not... The thing is, I'm sure Nicholas has said about, about more than one person. <laughs> <laughs> but that, is that your recollection, that Miliband had agreed? Obviously, you were inside M the mind of Ed Miliband for a long time. M Miliband agreed, and then what we, we found out on the 10 past eight on the Today programme, that the agreement had been broken. He had agreed, he had seen everything, um, the discussions and all the papers on Privy Council terms. Um, we had been very open with him and he didn't even tell us directly. We found out on the Today programme. But um, he, not only did he think he could, well, if he thought he could defeat the government, his own amendment also failed to pass. So it's not that he defeated the government and actually came up with a better policy. The policy that he suggested also failed to pass the Commons. So it, 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 I think it was a ridiculous situation to end up in. You had this fascinating access to the Prime Minister and, and, and relationship and a, and a political relationship. So you got to see firsthand the attributes that, that make and don't make a Prime Minister and the failings and the risks that leaders take. Out of the current 11 that have declared to be candidates to lead the Tory party, who amongst them, if any, do you think possesses the, uh, you know, the abilities that you would like to see in a Prime Minister? 
That's a long-winded way of asking me. Let's <laughs> <laughs> cut straight to it. <laughs> Are you going to make it awkward for Rory? <laughs> Is, he, is Rory on the pitch or is he on the subs bench in that sort of 11, your 11? Uh, is, is he here yet? Yeah? He on the pitch. <laughs> he's probably in Wigan or Warrington or... Yeah, so he's right there. I, I think, I, well, he's... He's working his way back. If there's 11, then he's definitely on the pitch. Okay, by default. on the pitch. Right. Um, um, <laughs> by the way, I'm, I'm buying time to think of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do any of them possess any strengths that you like? Could you say that Dominic Raab is a great orator? Or um, you know, that, that, that Boris Johnson at least tells the truth, or anything like that. Are there any attributes that they have? I think this is what a judge calls leading the witness. <laughs> well, Boris will find out. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> very good. Um, very good. Um, let, let, okay, let, let, me, let me answer your question, Essie Stanley. Uh, I mean, what, what I noticed. Um, about David Cameron's time is being prime minister is like being in an asteroid shower. You know, the things hitting you all the time. And so you need to be quite nimble and fast in reacting to political events. So if you are quite controlling and you struggle to come up with policy, not policy off the cuff, but react quite quickly. And in the morning, you're dealing with a military situation. In the afternoon, you had a nursery, you know, and then later on, you're doing an urgent question in the House of Commons, or a statement in the House of Commons. They're all very, very different events. And what Cameron was good at was bouncing from one to the other in very high-pressured situations and just being totally serene. I remember when the Leveson... Uh, report came, which at the time, those of you who follow politics uh, closely, was a big thing, you know, inquiring into phone hacking. And he took the pile of reports and went up to the Downing Street flat. And we hadn't heard from him for about an hour. And someone said, um, should someone call just in case he's just gone and had a nap? <laughs> right? And it's the sort of thing he would do, right? You know, this sort of key moment... He's about to go in the House of Commons, he'd have just gone up and had a bit of a nap first. I'm not saying every Prime Minister should do that, but what I'm saying <laughs> is that the judgment yes, and temperament I, and how they affect someone's ability to do the job, I think are seriously underrated. I think a lot of people look at policy and they think that person stands for that policy. I agree with that policy, so they are my person. But I think those personal qualities and human traits, your ability to... Get your colleagues together. Get colleagues who disagree with each other to work with you and all feel comfortable. I remember once um, one of the cabinet ministers say, coming out with a policy announcement. I said to David Cameron, that doesn't work. Um, wh why is he saying that? And he just turned around and said, um, they've worked for a long time on the policy. You've got to give them a chance to actually run with it for a bit. Right. I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying that David Cameron was perfect in all of this. I'm just saying that's my reference point in terms of... Uh, so um, with that in mind, when I look at the current uh, 11... Uh, I want to see more. <laughs> okay, so. I, want, I want to see more in terms of... I, I don't want to settle on this person supports this policy, so therefore they are automatically the right person. And by the way, all of them will talk about how they're going to unify the country, how they're going to get Brexit done, as though Theresa May didn't try hard enough, you know, and um, if they, how they're going to renegotiate better. And um, they're all, the, the buzzword to, I think, watch out for is um, 
alternative working arrangements, you know, <laughs> you know kind of whichever side of the, the uh, Brexit divide you are, make sure that in your answer you mention alternative working arrangements, uh, because then that ticks the ERG box. And um, so the, all, the, you, the, the language is uniform across, you know, people just say, I will negotiate better because I can negotiate. How do you, how do you evaluate that? So uh, I think I'd like to see more. And um, before you ask me where I think you're going to go, <laughs> what, what, what I've said personally is um, I think that there are serious questions to ask about where we go next. And it's not enough for people to say, I'll renegotiate, when there isn't much time to renegotiate um, on Brexit and uh, there isn't much scope to do so. And also we face a lot of big challenges in the country. And what I've said is if I don't see um, them, uh, people actually dealing with those issues, I'll consider putting myself forward, not to win, but to actually challenge them on those questions. So, um, that floored you. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I was just going to ask you if you can make. If, if, just in terms of. I've just, never seen you speechless. I'm loving no, it. Just in terms of news lines, if you can make your mind up in the next half hour. That'd be great. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're considering it, you might as well say you've announced it. No, 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 but on a serious note, you know, this, is, this, is, this is serious business, right? This is, and, I agree. Um, I think you'd be a great, I think this is the night, I think there's a, I think we're all amongst friends in a private conversation. <laughs> Do you, do you usually have these lights on when you're with your friends? So that's sort of air of interrogation. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually feeling hot so, now. Well, in terms then of you mulling this over, because I'm sure you're obviously you're not the only one going through this 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 um, this, this, this Obviously, I wouldn't be in the eleven, right? I mean, but now a football team, you've got to have a squad. So I'll be in the twenty-three or something. <laughs> oh yeah, but if there's twelve, then you could be the manager. Then that's better than they're all playing for you. Or the ref. Yeah. Um, <laughs> refs get a lot of shit. <laughs> no one likes. No one likes the ref. Um, I, I, I mean, in your head, do you think you know? I'm going to give it till Friday. I'm going to give it till Wednesday. In your head, have you started to ruminate on when you would throw your hat in the ring? I think I've said all I'm going to say on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I've said. I, I, and by the way, this is not the first place I've said that. I said that to ITV. Um, Cheers, mate. Exclusive, <laughs> I mean, this is because uh, the thing is, when people announce that they're off, when people announce that they're off, people say they want a timetable for their departure, but we need a timetable for your arrival. So, could you, when do you think um, you would make your mind up? Well, the window is closing, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> This is going to be like an episode of Waiting for Gima. Like, for <laughs> you know, just keep waiting. Well, is he going what? to say it? No. Is, is he going to declare? No. Well, I'll tell you what. We're waiting for Gima. We've got um, a kind of focus group here. So but maybe this would help you make your mind up. And answer honestly, just by way of a cheer when I ask, um, cheer or not. Um, cheer if you think Sam should throw his hat into the ring to be leader of the Conservative Party. That took a bit of encouragement. But there's a slight problem. Yeah. How many of you are actually members of the Conservative Party? <laughs> ah, but this, this demonstrates you have wide support amongst the public. Actually, then I can say there was a clamour 
Yes. You know, that I could not resist. Absolutely. <laughs> I could not resist the clamour, so... I think um, we can get Wi-Fi down here. I mean, we could start. If everyone here tonight starts tweeting about it... Hashtag make it happen. But you need your name in it, don't you? Do I? Yeah, yeah, you need... <laughs> yeah, maybe you shouldn't stand that shit. <laughs> You've got to have your name in it. You've got to have a hashtag with your name in it, haven't you? Like... Sam... Sam's the man? For no. what? For the leadership. <laughs> Sam, hashtag Sam's the man. By the way, I thought you were going to be asking me about the withdrawal agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I've mugged up. Right, I've read it. You know, page 300, I can tell you what's on it. Oh God, what's on page 300? Oh God, don't test me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's something about the Northern Irish Protocol. I can say that and you wouldn't know because I doubt you've read it. I've read bits of it. Yeah, have you? Yeah, I read the bit about security and um, I read the bit about we're leaving uh, the European Union but we will not be leaving Europe. That was, uh, that was reassuring. <laughs> given that you can't move countries. Yeah, uh, so just, uh, given that you're mulling this over... I thought we'd moved on. Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> Couldn't you just said that you might be standing to be Prime Minister? No, 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 I didn't say that. I said if I did it... Yeah. It would be to challenge people because they're not asking, they're not, every, everyone says they're going to renegotiate. I just can't get my head around it. Right? Everyone's going to renegotiate the backstop. Now, we've had that for a very long period of time. It was a Northern Ireland backstop, then it was a UK wide backstop. Theresa May told us that was a win. Theresa May spent five weeks between December and January renegotiating that backstop. Then she spent another month in February renegotiating the backstop. And it's not for will. Most of the people saying they'll renegotiate it. We're in the cabinet, or we're involved in this negotiation somehow. So I sit there and I ask myself, what is this? I don't understand it. But let's see what comes out over the next few days. You don't used to speak like that. And the reason why I was initially stumped wasn't that I would be surprised that you'd want to stand, because you, you're capable and charismatic and, and would be a great leader of the Tory party and a great prime minister. What I was stunned by... What I was stunned by... You've got a job. Was, no, no, no. The, <laughs> Well, I would happily serve the country if, <laughs> if it came to it. Um, if, what I was slightly surprised by was, in, in a way, the way you were constructing the argument was more like you were thinking of leaving the Tory party. It sounded more like someone who was reaching their wit's end with the state of things, rather than wanting to lead it, was thinking of leaving. No, no, I'm not at my wit's end at all. I, I think what, what, what I am at my wit's end about is that the perception that... This is what the members want to hear means that you are going to get everyone congregating around policy positions that are meaningless. Now, this is a high stakes time for the country. That is not what we need. That's kind of where I'm coming from. And um, you want people who are going to lead because this is not the kind of situation where you make a promise that you think you break, but you break it in two years time. Whatever you promise and get real and get elected on, you come straight to the House of Commons. You've got to implement it, right? And uh, <clears throat> lots of people who will be expecting you to deliver on what you said to them the day before, not least your own colleagues. So it's not, I'm not at my wit's end with the party at all. I'm a proud conservative. <laughs> the funny thing is I've, I've been called so many things. You know, some people said, "Oh, you, you sound like a Lib Dem," but then in the past, some people said, "I, you know, I." Do I represent the Labour Party? I think all those are assets, by the way, if people can't really place you. But no, I'm not at my wit's end. I'm, I'm a proud Conservative, and I'll always stay in the Conservative Party and fight for 
what I believe in. And I, I just think that as conservatives, we do well. We know when we do well, and I think we do well when we are pragmatic and all of those things. And if there's something I am frustrated by, sometimes I look at the current conservative party and I feel, call me old-fashioned, but I quite like the old pragmatic conservative party. That what era? Well, it's the reason why the Conservative Party was the most successful political party in the 20th century is that um, it's pragmatic, it put country first, pro-business, pro-aspiration, those things. And I think we shouldn't lose those. Th those that's why I'm a Conservative. In terms of Conservative members then, and this is obviously what the country's trying to get its head around, is that we are going to be given a Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party <coughs> that, you know, 100 to 200,000 people are going to choose. And it sounds like based on what a lot of the leadership candidates are saying at the moment, is that the Tory party membership is to the right of the parliamentary party and is more Eurosceptic than the Tory party. So it's a kind of no-deal um, majority probably out there in the country. Um, that sounds at odds with what you want. I mean, do you feel at odds with your own membership? And in terms of your own local party, I mean, there have been various attempted deselections of you. I mean, you, you, you seem to be very patient towards people that perhaps haven't been quite as patient with you. They are. I mean, they selected me. They've elected me three times. <clears throat> but um, it's politics, and there are, there are, in, in in my particular situation, a few people who didn't like uh, like me from the moment I was selected, and they're always looking for an opportunity to have a pop. Why is that? Ask them. <laughs> but, but what do they say to you? I mean, this is uh, East Surrey. Yeah. Um. Is it, is it that you're seen too much as a moderniser? Well, that's what I've said, you know, that kind of for some of them, I'm sort of a modernisation gone too far. But then I read The Guardian and I'm, when they criticise me, they go, that Tory, you know, so I don't know. You know, they talk about me that I'm sort of some Neanderthal Tory, Tory in The Guardian. I, that's what some of them think. But this is a small group of people and they keep trying. But that's politics, right? Um, I, 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 there's a reason why I'm in politics, the things I want to achieve while I'm in politics, and they're not going to deflect me from that. And um, I always believe that in life, if you listen to what a few people were always saying about you, you never get anything done. So I, I just deal with it. But it is frustrating, it is annoying. Um, it is annoying that you know, it's political service, you're doing it, and some, all some people can do is find reasons to criticize. But I suspect I'm not the only one amongst my colleagues who has a fractious relationship with some people. I think a number of my, in the association, uh, if you, you, you wouldn't be an MP if you didn't, right? It's just that um, in my case, they always want to go to Guido or Con home to talk about it, <laughs> and to make it, whereas they don't do in other people's cases. But I, it's what over ducks back. Do you, I mean, the caricature of the Shire Tory that's the kind of retired colonel and things were better when we were stuffing it to the Jerry's and all that. I mean, is that... <laughs> it, it, do you recognise that in your own local party, or is, is that perhaps um, too, too far? Look, I think the, the honest answer is... Yes. Anyone who wants to... <laughs> <laughs> it's the equivalent of, let me be clear, you're not about to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the honest answer is, look, in this day and age, it's strange to be a member of a political party. Very few people choose to be members of a political party. And so people who become, who are members of political parties, and it's every political party, amongst them you have some people who 
are true, true, true believers. They believe that they believe more than anyone else. And in the Labour Party today, or Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, those true believers, I think are a lot more, they make one party political point, a lot more worrying for me, you know, on something like anti-Semitism, than the people I have to deal with in the Conservative Party. What I have found, though, is whatever people's views are, they all have children and they all have grandchildren. And their children and grandchildren experience life in the way that everyone else does. Mm. What you need to do in politics is be prepared to lead. And being prepared to lead means you, can take, you need to take uncomfortable positions where you think is right and be able to persuade people. And I, when I look at politics now, I think what is missing is the desire of politicians to go out and win the argument. What nothing frustrates me more than when you know, an advisor say, well, the polls say you can't do that. Well, your job is to change opinion. Your yes. job is to explain. Your job is to persuade. Your job is to help educate. And I think so long as we politicians are not doing that and we just give in to whatever views are because those are the views without really, and I'm not saying don't listen, then we deserve everything we get. And that's to do with your base, whether you are in today's Labour Party or whether you're in the Conservative Party. And that is why here tonight you announced that you are standing <laughs> to be the leader of the Conservatives, Prime Minister of Great Britain and the United Kingdom. I mean, there Next must be part of you. <laughs> Listen, you're a politician. You, you, you're, you know, you, you, it's not unusual for politicians uh, look, to want to be Prime Minister. I mean, I, I haven't said it's unusual. I've said I'll consider it. And you're asking me to give you an answer before I've fully considered. I think I'm not just showing you ankle, I've shown you my knees and thighs and everything. <laughs> yeah, they're not the bits I want to see. <laughs> well, I think okay, I'm I'll very, tell you what. I'm very, I'm, very, I'm very sorry, that must be a horrible image. By the end of the night, either announce or just show us everything. And that's, that's the, it's the only thing that will satisfy the bloodlust of this baying mob. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, but you must have at some point thought, and, and I'm talking pre this leadership election, I'm talking pre the referendum and stuff like that, when you go into politics, we first stand, there must be part of you that thinks, you know, one day I could be Prime Minister, just in the, in the, even if it's a very small thought in the background. Have I ever thought so? Yeah, of course. I have. And it's in, in, in all of us in work. Fancy getting a promotion, right? It's a, it's a normal human thing. And all of us in work not, don't only just fancy getting a promotion, we also fancy doing the job at a level that we hope our abilities, etc., would. The reality is over time you find where your ability, luck, and everything gets you to. I'm still going through that process of discovery. <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems the most remarkable time in politics in the sense that the, the two major parties, uh, and obviously May is, is going, but haven't been led by their best and brightest. And this is, this is, this is a great country that deserves, I think, a better choice for uh, Prime Minister and for opposition. And, and the first flush is actually, I think, this Tory leadership contest is showing that whether you like these people or not, there actually is a, a, a whole, there's actually quite a broad well of talent that is now showing its face. And it's not just the favourites necessarily, because, you know, they don't necessarily fulfil that brief, but there are, <laughs> there, are, there are interesting voices that actually people haven't been paying attention to. And 
what I'm saying is, I suppose, this Tory leadership contest is an opportunity to restore some faith just in politics in general. The fear is actually that it turns into internecine warfare and the whole thing becomes a, a race to no deal and quite a zealous uh, exercise in, in, in the problems of modern, modern politics. I mean, uh, Dominic Raab tried to get this, um, what was it, fair campaign, clean campaign. Clean campaign, <clears throat> um, yeah. Uh, uh, and he and who else had signed it? Uh, a couple of the others. Sajid Javid. And Matt Hancock. And Matt Hancock, that's it. Um, and I think Rory said he would like to sign it. But then he's been accused by others of actually not consulting them whether they would like to have signed it before he went public. I mean, do you worry about um, the tone of the campaign to come? And would that stop you from running? <laughs> How many times are you going to ask this question? How many ways are you going to... Um, I think it's... I, I suspect the tone will be not very positive, I suspect, um, and even if not from the candidates themselves, uh, their teams, you know, people are staffed up, they've got uh, teams, they've got advisors who fancy being the chief of staff in Downing Street, so they're going to do everything for their candidate to win, including if it's um, unleashing political violence on another candidate. Violence? Political. Oh, right. Yeah. So we hit him with a manifesto. <laughs> There's my commitment. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, a, so I think, I think, I think that, 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 that creates conditions for a contest that could get quite bitter quite quickly. Um, I think we've also got Brexit, and, um, which is a highly emotive subject. And so that then goes away from the candidates and their advisors to the Twitter mob. Right, and um, if you're not on my side, then you're, if you're not on my side, then I can treat you however I want. And so I can see the whole thing just degenerating quite quickly and it wouldn't be a great spectacle for the Conservative Party because it would come across as the, it's all about people positioning for their next job rather than actually thinking about the country at a time of crisis. Uh, I, I, I think that, that, that spectacle will not be very good. That said, I mean, something you've highlighted is that there is a lot of bent strength in the Conservative Party. And um, there are people who, you know, it's, it's a turning point for the country. It's a, the party is at a crossroads in terms of which way it goes. In the party, I personally feel that the party goes towards no deal and delivers no deal. Um, it is a very different Conservative Party to a party that uh, even if you went for no deal, went for no deal because the people had voted for it. And um, so I, I think that turning points in history also means it throws up new people. And the whole sort of hierarchy of succession, you know, you, you know you're a junior minister for this and you know, it seems to have gone out of the window. And um, of course, you, need, if you, you can't become prime minister if you haven't got sort of substantial ministerial experience or experience as a leader of the opposition for a period of time. But I think there are a lot of people who feel this is their time because a lot is at stake for the country. And I think, why not? And, and, and so we're going to have a new Prime Minister by mid to late July, uh, who the party will have chosen but not the public. I mean, how long do you think a new Prime Minister just chosen by the party can go without calling a general election? What's fair? Well, how long did Gordon Brown go on for? Three years. There you go. 
It's possible, but I think the, the, the challenge is not going to be how long can you go for. I think you have a minority government, so you would not you would have had the party having chosen a prime minister for a minority government. So there will quite quickly be legitimacy questions, especially on the big policy issues. And I'm saying that's that's a fact. And um, the more radical you want to be on policy. <laughs> the more that legitimacy issue, the legitimacy point becomes a big issue mm. because you don't have a mandate from the country. Yeah, people say, oh, hold on a second, I voted for the dementia tax. You know, that's what I, that's what I, when I went into that polling booth to vote for Theresa May, that's what I wanted. When are you going to take my home away from me? This is, this is a democratic deficit. Um, but I that's, suppose... That's, that's, the, that's the answer I give to, you know, in part when people say, this is in your manifesto, deliver it. You know, they say, you know, you voted this way, especially on Brexit, out of the customs union, out of the single market on this, this is in your manifesto. To which I say, absolutely, that's true. But we'd also, our manifesto never mentioned Northern Ireland. Our manifesto also mentioned a re, an orderly exit uh, from the EU. And our manifesto said, we'll be able to have this comprehensive free trade treaty in which we had negotiated the exit and the future at the same time. But then I asked them, okay, so if you believe a manifesto is a Bible, the dementia tax, or what do you mean, um, hunting? That's or the Old whatever, Testament. You know? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to? You know, but, but what I mean, so of course you've got to deliver manifestos, but we also you can't say that the manifesto is a Bible, then pick which what which bits of the Bible you want, but the other bits. That's what people do do with the Bible. That's <laughs> do you? <laughs> well, that's it's, well, I, I no longer. Um, believe but I, I, I come from a christian background and yeah, I, I yeah. the, so you've, you've actually cast the bible aside completely oh yeah but i would never describe it like that <laughs> i just, I just stop reading it but um it, it, it struck me as an altar boy that it was um that people could pick and choose old testament new testament and, and find you know you can find a passage in the bible that will justify all sorts of things really oh yeah have you read it yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read chunks of the Bible. Not, not for a while, but yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, it's only it's just slimmer than the withdrawal agreement. So I think we should, <laughs> we should work your way through that. Maybe, maybe then move on to the Bible. But um, I suppose that everyone here is thinking, and I, I know you probably can't tell us in the next five minutes. <laughs> but obviously, everyone is thinking. I wonder if, it, and I, you know what? I, I would, I would never want to speak on behalf of people. But there, there is, I think, there's a sense sometimes when you, when you listen to certain politicians that whatever's gone on with Brexit that the way you talk and the, your philosophy on politics, whether we're left-wing or right-wing or whatever, but just the way you're talking about politics is something that hasn't, doesn't feel like it's been the tone of the times in which we've lived for a while. We, we're living through very difficult periods. And actually, there's a, there's a sort of sense of hope in the way that you talk about politics and the way that... I think people would leave here tonight going, if you ended up as Prime Minister, people would be happy with it. <laughs> I'd be really happy if you could... <laughs> Announce it. <laughs> I love the way he said it's about the country, it's about hope, and it turns out I quite like the scoop. <laughs> but I just, I just think you represent something so powerful for people, so hopeful, regardless of whether you stand or not. I mean, do, you, do you sense that yourself? Do I? Yeah. You should, you should come and talk to my local association. <laughs> you should come and talk to them. You know, there's, there's a group of people, you know, I just sort of say, you know, this is someone who's impartial. I'm not sure that'd help. No. Well, you'd be positive Some Blairite coming to back you up, that'd reinforce all their, <laughs> <laughs> reinforce all their worst fears. 
Look, no, guys, if, I, if Sam's I can a reach you, guy. if I can reach you, it's good for the Conservative Party, isn't it? Well, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not in a place to vote for the Conservative Party, really. You'd be expelled from the Labour Party if you said so. <laughs> oh well. No, I, <laughs> I proudly expelled myself uh, on the day that Corbyn became leader. Um, it was obvious to some of us, wasn't it? Um, you know, everyone's got to go on a learning curve. I mean, I, I, I mean, do you have... well, you're precocious then. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever? But do you worry about the, the, you know, what you're saying about a no-deal party that, that reaches that conclusion without a referendum? Could you stay in a party like that? Do you fear that it's... Pa- if, this, if this leadership election ends up being trying to, trying to put off the Brexit party, trying to out-farage Farage, would that be a party that, you know, just in the way that people have left the Labour Party, could you ever imagine a time when you could leave the Tories? It's not something I've thought of. I, I don't think you can deliver... I mean, I, I think it would be extremely difficult to deliver no deal as a minority government. I think uh, whatever you say about that's the legal default, if you try to do it and that revoke petition hits 10 million and you have the market reaction that is negative and it would be aggressively negative, the atmospherics around it will be such that it will be a foolhardy prime minister who try to do it when they don't have a majority in yeah, government. But, but having looked at the candidates, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily rule that out. I mean, at least, at least two or three. Esther McVeigh said she would. Boris probably would. Dominic? Yeah, yeah I've heard that. I, 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 I personally don't think people, the people have actually thought through what delivering that as a policy means. I'm not sort of getting into Project Fear. I'm just saying, when you have to stand up as Prime Minister and say, this is now my policy. I am going to take the UK out of the EU without a deal. Don't worry. I will convene COBRA so that there will be the emergency committee to make sure that everything is under control. Right? Kind of, you're not creating a situation where the country suddenly feels hopeful. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's one of these things that it sounds, to me, to my mind, it sounds that you can do it in theory but in practice, actually delivering it. And then you need to explain to the country that the day after you've executed your no deal, then what? Which trade deal are you going to prioritize? Which negotiation are you going to do first? The EU. Um, how are you going to, so, so, so I, I wonder, when I say I want to see, I wonder whether people have actually sat through and worked through what practically delivering this means. And if someone could show me a plan, I mean an actual plan, not words, of how this could work and make our country prosperous, then great, I'm for it. But I'm not one of these people who would ever have an EU flag waving out of my house, right? I'm not that. But I think what this yeah, is our national interest. Yeah, what's that to do that? <laughs> you know, that, that, I, it's, it's purely for me about our national interest. You know, how is our national interest best served? And I haven't heard anyone other than shouting the mantra or the slogans actually talk through how you, how you deliver this. What does it mean on the first day, the second day, 30 days later, 60 days later? Where are you? And by the way, if you're 5% wrong, just 5% wrong, in, what does that mean for the country? Right? Black Wednesday was just one day. 
right, interest rates went up to 15%. And that really damaged the Conservative Party's reputation for economic competence. Mm. As it happens, we lost the 1997 election, having left Tony Blair with a golden economic legacy. But still, kind of, we had to fight our way back. So um, that's, what, that's what I mean, that you've got, to, you've got to ask yourself, if you want to do it, what if something goes wrong? And it is the lives, it is the livelihoods of 66 million citizens that you are dealing with. And that is what I think someone's got to, win, you've got to go through in order to take the country out on no deal. And I haven't had anyone lay out in very clear terms what this plan looks like. And that is what makes me nervous. I think you made us all very nervous. Um, <laughs> but, but I obviously have a lot of sympathy. We've got time for a couple of quick questions before we head to the break. So indicate clearly and we'll bring a microphone to you. Uh, yes, the lady at the front and then the lady behind us. That's OK. Cheers, Daisy. Thank you. And let's I've know got your a name. colleague at the front row, in the front row. Yes, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Tim Lawton on the front yes, row. One of our... <laughs> one of the greatest ever guests. Um, <laughs> seriously. We'll come to Tim in a sec. We'll, we'll, we'll take these questions. Okay, you've been in government for a little while. Uh, what's your proudest achievement while you've been there? What's your proudest achievement in government? If you just hand the microphone to the lady behind, and then we, we could take it at the same time. Thank you. And uh, so you, you say that uh, if we haven't got a, 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 an idea of where we're going now, why on earth did David Cameron put us in this position that we're in now? So uh, it was, um, what's your proudest achievement and why did you make fuck it up? <laughs> uh, well, well. I'd love to have him on the show, by the way. So <laughs> Do ask him. Well, his book is coming out. So <laughs> a, good, a good time to invite him. No, I'll, I'll take the, the second one first. The David Cameron one is... Um, hopefully he's going to answer that in his, uh, his autobiography coming out in October, you know, for, for, for the record. But um, I, I don't think... Look, I, 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 I don't think he thought he was going to lose the referendum. Mm. Don't back me. I didn't call it. <laughs> <laughs> But do you think, um, hey, hey, do you think, um, do you think he understood the risks of calling it anyway? That even if he'd have won, he'd have, un for it, to quote him, unleashed demons? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I, I, um, I remember in the discussions I was in, you know, I, my politics tutor always said to me, you know, when I asked them once, you know, what's wrong with giving people a say? And he said, the problem is when you never know whether they are answering the question that you're asking them. <laughs> yes. Well, that's... And I think that's, yeah. that's, 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 the, that's the issue, and they didn't really think that, clearly didn't think that through. Um, in terms of my proudest achievement in government, so I've been, um, I've been childcare minister, I've been prisons minister, and then universities, science, research, and innovation minister. And a, lot of, a number of things that I am... Um, uh, proud of, certainly as childcare minister, uh, I would say <coughs> that um, we had a, a child died in nursery and uh, there wasn't, the staff weren't trained in first aid to administer first aid to her. And the parents started campaigning to have mandatory first aid in every nursery. 
and for about a year before I became the minister. And for whatever reason, the, the civil servants didn't want to do this because it increased the cost, you can't do it, all of this stuff. And um, I kind of didn't understand it. You know, kind of, why can't we just do this? And I went, turned up at the debate with my standard brief and notes. And halfway through the speech, I just realized this doesn't make sense. Got the parents in the gallery, I'm just spouting out nonsense, you know, and this could happen to anyone's child. So in the midway through the debate, I conceded that we should have a consultation on this. And in the end, the way I got around the civil service uh, difficulties was we established a kite mark called Millie's Mark. So that every nursery, if you had all your staff trained in first aid, you gained this kite mark named after the three-year-old who passed away. And so encourage the nurseries to do it themselves rather than to use the sledgehammer of legislation. And I'm proud of that because, you know, everyone, you always want to talk about the big, big things you've done. But I think that as a junior minister, to do that and think that a life could be saved because of that is something that I am proud of and sort of work in the system. And as prisons minister, the, you know, I had the biggest riot in 25 years when on my watch, um, the Birmingham uh, prison riot. And um, te absolutely terrifying, because it's the sort of thing where at the end of the day, you don't know what's gonna happen. Are you still gonna be in your job or not? Sorry. <laughs> That's uh, schoolboy error, I'm sorry. Who was it, yeah? It's Mrs. G. <laughs> My wife. <laughs> I, I inferred that. Yeah. She's, no, she's 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 travelling, which is why she's. Answer it if you like. Um. Answer it. Does she know where you are? She doesn't know where I am, which is why she keeps calling. <laughs> Otherwise, she wouldn't. Um, so, um, and as prison, and, and that was, I mean, that was, that was a serious moment. And nobody really talks about prisons and um, only when bad things happen. That's the difficulty of uh, doing that job. But I had a, we, we then managed to secure 100 million pounds in the treasury. And my job was to recruit enough prison officers. And I did what the department had never done before, which is I commandeered half of the floor put all the staff who were to do with the recruitment process on that floor next to me. I could see them every day. We had progress charts on the wall and we exceeded the target by eight months. And that's something that is just about getting things done within government. You don't put that on your manifesto or anything. And finally, as university's minister, I would say my proud achievement was getting the government to come out of the Galileo negotiations. So Galileo is basically the European equivalent of GPS. Most of you, you have a GPS. We currently use the American system. Um, there's a European equivalent, which as members of the EU, we've uh, contributed to, but it's also absolutely essential for uh, military operations. It is how you identify if there is a terrorist in a block, which, where, which floor they are on, to be able to take them out. So critical for us. We were involved in negotiations with the EU, threatened to kick us out and it, um, during the negotiations. And the HMG's response was to try and find some kind of compromise. And I looked at it and thought, look, there is going to be no compromise here. 
there is no reason we should not be carrying on with this. <coughs> We're better off, rather than to be humiliated, to leave. And to leave and try and build our own. And um, when I first came up with the idea, you know, it was poo-pooed and eventually I managed to persuade the government to do that. Now, why is, do I consider that as an achievement? I think what is lost in this Brexit debate is that somehow if you voted Remain, some people think that you do not care enough about the country or our interests. But for me, our national interests are absolutely important. And that for me was a moment where I could make sure that our interests were defended rather than exploited by the other side. Uh, Sam, it's been a, a pleasure. To talk. I'll, I'll take the I'll take the answer on increasing the number of prison staff as a coded attack on Boris Johnson. And I'm sure everyone, I'm sure everyone, <laughs> sure everyone in the room will as well. Um, well, what a, what an amazing start! And and we will obviously all now be waiting to see. I, I never saw myself as going to be Rory Stewart's warm-up act. Amazing, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Sam Gamer. Thank you. <laughs> 
your experience in working in care, and then this sort of intimate conversation begins, and suddenly the sort of French camera comes, and <laughs> suddenly from the other side the New York Times appears, and everything has to be. And then I managed to get off the train thinking I'll have a little break before I see you, because I started, started on the Today program this morning. And uh, a New York Times journalist just grabbed me for 45 minutes before I came on stage, drilling me like this in Brussels. <laughs> So I'm now coming sort of shell-shocked and <laughs> little, it's ready for Matt to kind of repeat the homily. And, and I can't see any of you either. It's, it's like an amazing sort of stage. I feel like I'm um, like a mime artist. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I mean, uh, would a mime artist do well in a Tory leadership contest? <laughs> <laughs> A silent candidate? Maybe that's, that's what people would like. I, th I think that's what would win. That's what would win. I think you've got it. I think, I think you've got it. I think the one thing I've learned about politicians is that, um, yeah, is that we're not very good at stopping talking. Yeah. Oh, you managed it well, then. Um, so in terms of, uh, I mean, this is, this must, uh, how does it feel to have blown this contest wide open in a way and have, and have made all the running? Because there was a, there was a script that it was basically going to be Boris versus Gove. Uh, and actually, Rory Stewart is the candidate that everyone is talking about. I mean, you, you obviously had decided to run, but did you expect to have this, such an overwhelming positive reaction? No. No, no, no. no I didn't. I didn't at all. No, it's been very strange. I did a... Um, no, it's very strange, very strange, um, because I'm doing roughly what I think I've been doing for the last nine years. Nobody paid any attention at all, so <laughs> I don't know what's happened. Some, some, something very strange. This, this New York Times journalist said, uh, who is your kind of media guru? And the answer is there's a, there's a very nice guy called Joel who's been working in my office for the last year and a half. But as far as I can see, he and I aren't doing anything different from what we've been doing. <laughs> For a year and a half, but suddenly um, we're, I'm getting all these people saying, "Where's your PR advice?" Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's it's very strange. I I, I think that um, probably the secret for, is that most of us as MPs are relatively natural dealing uh, in our constituencies, dealing dealing with constituents and surgeries. And probably the problem in politics is remembering to try to be in public the kind of person that you are in your constituency. And maybe the only breakthrough that I've made here is, is to try to, whether I'm Wigging or whether I'm in Lewisham, just to try to listen to local particular issues. My, my insight is that People thought this campaign was about kind of big policy with a capital P. They would go off to some think tank and they'd get a whole series of papers. And when I went to see the leadership candidates, because of course one of the jokes about being a leadership candidate is everybody else is trying to pitch you too, so you go in to see them. And I realized that every single one of them was saying the same thing. So they would all look at you and say, I'm comfortable with modern Britain. You know, I really care about technology. <laughs> young people, young people are very important. Right? Housing, right? And I thought, wait a second, I don't know, I can't remember who I'm talking to here. Right? Um, and then I realized that actually the, the, the answer to a lot of the problems with politics is that these things are very vague abstractions, whereas actually what matters is not 
housing. What matters is Libby in Penrith is on an income of £16,000 a year, and she cannot find a place to rent for under £400. That, that, that's what housing is about, right? Again, social care, right? As produced in a paper by Policy Exchange, sounds like a very grand story about fiscal policy. Are we going to take it from people's property assets? Are we going to take it from national insurance? But actually what it's about is that it is not acceptable. It is not acceptable that when a carer goes to see an elderly person at the moment, they are limited to 15 minutes in their house. Right? That is not enough time to feed somebody, wash somebody, and above all, it's not enough time to have a conversation with somebody. Right? So the whole secret in our politics is that by changing language, you change the way you act. You change the way that you, you do things. And the reason that walking around has been really important for me is that I'm beginning to rediscover the confidence about how you get things done. Hmm. In terms of the public reaction, you know, when an MP is just walking down the street with an iPhone, just going up to them, wanting to talk to them. I mean, from what I've seen on Twitter, people seem very, very warm and open. Is it that you're only showing the positive ones? Or are some people either befuddled, hostile or other? Um, I, I think that this is a very, very courteous country. So a lot of the people I talk to will disagree with me very, very strongly about Brexit. They will uh, never want to vote for me. But people are very happy to have a, a rant with you and then shake hands and be very warm when you, when you move on. I think basically people appreciate you being out there. And, and this is something Tim will experience as an MP all the time, and much longer than me, much more experienced MP than me. That he's older. No, he's been, he's been, a, been, a, he's been in Parliament longer. Um, he's, been a, he's been elected Member of Parliament longer. That, that basically the, the, the main thing that, that people say is, thank God you're here. You know, what matters to me is that you're here. What matters is that I can see you. So listening, listening and acting. It does seem, I mean, you describe it like that, and obviously it's those of us who care about politics, this isn't news to us, but there is a way in which you're saying it that makes it feel very new. I mean, do you, do you feel that some of your colleagues perhaps have not got the same approach? I think all of us have the same approach. We just don't give ourselves permission to be who we are. I think that... The tragedy of this country is that we have somehow become much less than the sum of our parts, and there is nowhere where that's clearer than in Parliament. You take 650 people who are very impressive individuals, and somehow at the end of it, you make it feel like an organisation of about six people, whereas in fact a good organisation, a good team of 650 should feel like it's thousands. We're, we are, we're crushing people. And that's something to do with the way that people have written the rules of media, the rules of politics. It's something to do with yeah, that, that are, we're not being human. We're not, we, we've lost the ability to be who we were before we came into parliament. Right? Before we came into parliament, we were people who were 
successful business people, or we were people who were inspirational teachers, or we were... You know, I've got a colleague who was a very successful colonel in the army. It doesn't matter who we were, but when we come into Parliament, all that is forgotten, and uh, it infantilizes. And when you treat people like children, when you humiliate them, uh, you don't get performance out of them. You, you, uh, performance, I sound like a management consultant. They, they, just, they, they just can't act. They, they can't be themselves. How, I mean, this message seems to, I, I think it really cuts through the public, and, it, it, and it, I think there's a real thirst for this sort of approach and this sort of attitude. How is it going down um, with Conservative members? Ah. Oh. <laughs> well, we have a Conservative member. <clears throat> the, 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 there are three questions that Conservative members of Parliament would have, which is, can I get Brexit done? Can I defeat Jeremy Corbyn? And can I reunite the country? If I can prove to Tim, or indeed any of them, that I can do those three things, I will be Prime Minister. And in order to prove that I can do those three things, I need to do something very difficult, which is I need to prove that I can win an election. In the end, all members of Parliament come into this business. They began wanting to change the country. And in order to change the country, they have to hold their seats and they have to win an election. If I can show that I am the person who can actually touch younger voters, I'm the person who can actually win back one. <laughs> oh. Some of my, some of my, some of my. Not the exclusive I was looking for, but I'll take it. Good. Good. Some, some of my colleagues actually are quite good at that. I'll, I'll, I'll. Um, uh, if, if I can, uh, let, let's maybe use the word connect uh, to younger voters. Then I think. Uh, it, it's, it can be one. If, on the other hand, Tim thinks, well, this is fine, he's, uh, you know, 600,000 people on Twitter may want to watch his videos talking about how he wants to change the country, but that's not going to win me my seat, or it's not going to win enough seats, then I'm not going to win this election. I mean, I don't want to bring Tim in too much because, I, obviously... Well, no, not because... No, he's a brilliant... For a ticket. Of course. But there was, you, the way you set that up was almost like... It was like a magic trick, like you were going to get Tim up and convince him live on stage and, and become Prime Minister. But, uh, Tim, it's, 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 no, it's no question that, you, you know, uh, uh, no secret that you are highly loyal to Andrea Ledson. That's where, you know, so many of your political principles align with hers. It... Is there a world in which you would support Rory for the leadership? Oh, let's get to my mic. I wasn't ex <laughs> Look, I paid for my ticket to come here and listen this evening. <laughs> I've done my bit on your stage. I, I think Rory is really refreshing, because I think what we need at the moment is somebody who is not one of the regular suspects and is actually got a very different approach, because these are extreme times. Now, whether Rory and I agree on certain issues is, is one thing, but I really applaud, and my wife would like me to vote for him, <laughs> really, really applaud the, the different way that Rory's going out of, uh, about it at the moment, because we need something like, uh, like that to, uh, to do it. And we've got an awful lot, dare I say it, of identicate candidates who probably don't tick all the boxes for the position that we are in at the, uh, at the moment, and Rory is challenging that, which is, which is great. So can I just ask um, Mrs Lawton, if you wouldn't mind? <laughs> 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 
Yeah. I know, but, but you, uh, would you rather Tim vote for, for Rory than Andrea? <laughs> Who he's going to vote for. <laughs> <laughs> Not even at home? Not even at home. We're, we're presuming Andrea Lebson, of course, but I, I, I'm presuming. Well, because you ran her campaign last time. I mean, that's a fair assumption to make, isn't it? Well, this is, completely diff- this is a completely different circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So look, I'm. I'm, I'm... I'm touting around, I tell you, I'm, I'm anybody. I'll tell you what, I reckon... He's, what's in it this, for me? He's, he's, he... <laughs> let me tell you, tell you. This guy, this guy is my Secretary of State for Education. <laughs> I, I've always known that Rory was the one. I reckon, I mean, not only a, a place in, in cabinet, but I, I think I think another bottle of Chablis, and you definitely get him over. The, <laughs> definitely get him over the line. Um, I mean, I, I suppose when you say you need to convince Tim, you mean not just Tim specifically, but other politicians <laughs> like Tim. You know, you're kind of the Mondeo man of this election that, that you represent. <laughs> <laughs> Something wider. I mean, do do you? How many of your parliamentary colleagues do you think you could currently rely on the support of at the moment? I'm probably pushing... I'd be lucky to come out of that first round at the moment with 2025. That would be doing well. So I would have to move. There are probably a hundred and... moment about 130 MPs undeclared. So to come well out of that first round, I'd have to shift least a dozen more, and then I'd have to count on going into the second round, picking up votes from other candidates. This is like the Grand National, as you might have noticed. Right. Well, so, some <laughs> of them will be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Boris right. has been turned into glue. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, some, 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 but some, some, some of these candidates will some of these candidates will go into that first round potentially with only four, five, ten votes. And the question for somebody like me is, can you convince people on the second round to, to bring them on? And partly that'll be about old friendships, because actually members of parliament are also quite loyal. So people will feel, you know, this is somebody I've known for many years, this is somebody that I've, I've been with before, this is somebody I've promised my vote to. Oddly, what you would expect, because it's a secret ballot, is that you would expect people to promise their vote to everybody. And strangely, they, they, they don't do that. People are actually surprisingly straight about saying, I'm not sure I'm going to vote for you. <laughs> Forget it. Forget it. Now, what they do in the ballot box, you see, that's the other thing. That's why a lot of people will be gambling on this. A lot of people will be hoping that when they get into the secrecy of the ballot box, uh, they're going to have a little punt on that grand national horse that they weren't prepared to admit they'd back. So is it fair to say that you're, in terms of the MPs you're targeting, it would be the Remainer end of the Parliamentary Party? You're looking for, had they stayed, Sarah Wollaston, Heidi Allen and Anna Soubry and people like Philip Lee? I won't win this race if I'm getting votes only from those people because the only way of being Prime Minister is to reunify the party and through that reunify the country. I have to get Brexit voters voting for me. If I'm some sort of candidate being run by the, what would be seen as the Remainer left of this party, uh, it goes nowhere. 
I mean, that, that would finish at about 40, 50 votes, maybe. In order to win this, you have to convince, well, you have to convince members of the ERG that I can get Brexit done. So, given that you've ruled out a no-deal Brexit, what else can you offer people who really want the no-deal Brexit? <laughs> well, I believe very strongly that the reason people want a no-deal Brexit is they want Brexit done. It's not that they particularly like the idea of a no-deal Brexit. I think everybody on every side of this, even, even people who voted for a no-deal Brexit, can see that that is a at the very least, a risky option, right? So the, the debate works like this. There are different reasons why people are comfortable with no-deal Brexit, but one of the main reasons is people will say, well, you can't trust economists, so Bank of England, the Treasury, is telling you that a no-deal Brexit will have this or that impact on your GDP. And the answer will be, so my friend John Barron, for example, will say this to me. Well, yeah, economists are often wrong, so they could be wrong about that. But remember, all they're saying is the economists could be wrong. The economists could be wrong in two directions. It could be worse than they predicted, it could be better than they predicted. They're not saying that they have an alternative group of economists who are going to predict that it's definitely going to be better. So, as a result, almost everybody in the Conservative Party would accept that a deal, a deal is better than a no deal. But the real killer is John Burke. We now have a speaker. <laughs> Sounds like a murder mystery. <laughs> right, we now have a speaker who's announced that he's going to extend. And he's announced that his view is that although no deal is currently the legal default, Parliament has the constitutional right to block no deal. He will therefore facilitate Parliament in blocking no deal. That means that any candidate who is promising no deal is not going to be able to get it through Parliament unless they prorogue Parliament. Right? The only way they could get it through is basically to do a Charles I. They'd have to lock the doors on Parliament. And the problem with doing that is that to have any hope of getting no deal responsibly delivered, they have to get an immigration bill through, they have to get an agriculture bill through, they have to get a trade bill through. And they can't do those things if they've slammed the door on Parliament allow any of those bills to go through, those bills will be amended and we'll have a repeat of what we just had. Parliament will insist on requesting an extension from Europe. So anybody going for no-deal Brexit is actually offering delay. This is such an important point. No-deal sounds like it's a decisive resolution. But if Parliament will not allow no-deal, then it is delay. So the secret has to lie in doing what the Prime Minister failed to do, which is unlocking Parliament behind a deal. Has to. It's a parliamentary democracy. We don't have a majority in Parliament. Nobody can wish that away. Even the most bold executive in the world can't wish that away. And the person who can get it through Parliament is the person you want as Prime Minister. And the question is, who is going to be able to get 45 moderate Labour votes behind a deal? Me? Or Boris Johnson. But it's, but it's also about getting 45 moderate Labour MPs without losing the people on the other side. Yeah. No one doubts that someone could bring those people over, but it's bringing them over without losing 45 yeah. at the back end. Yeah. So how do you unlock that? 
Lee Sanandi, whose constituency I was in today, Wigan, is a classic example of the kind of person that you have to have voting. So she said to me again and again over the last few months, I want to vote for a deal. Nobody will talk to me. Nobody will listen to me. I don't know who to talk to. I have no idea why nobody was listening to her and nobody was talking to her. I do not believe that there are any particular details in this deal that she doesn't want to vote for. But she doesn't somehow feel it's legitimate to vote for this deal. What she is requesting is a citizens' assembly. And a citizens' assembly is what they did in Ireland to unblock abortion. So abortion was like Brexit, very, very polarized issue, very black and white. It's a basically a jury. It's a giant jury selected at random from the public. They sit, they take expert evidence, they make recommendations in public. All of this happens in public. But by doing it, they actually change the whole debate. And this isn't just theoretical. This is actually what happened in Ireland. This thing, abortion, which politicians have been unable to resolve for decades, was unstuck by this very quickly in a matter of weeks. That Citizens' Assembly meets. The Citizens' Assembly could be you. Right? Wouldn't actually be you, because you won't be completely representative of every part of the United <laughs> Kingdom. Or um, and in fact, actually, it's done very scientifically. It begins with a random selection from the Electoral Register, and then a polling company literally analyzes everybody on gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, and they produce a representative sample. And then it's like a parliamentary committee. It's surrounded by clerks. It's very, very well staffed. Expert witnesses testify, records are taken. All this happens in public. They produce their recommendations. My belief is their recommendations will be to get this withdrawal agreement through. We have 270 MPs already with that deal. I think we can bring over 40 Labour MPs on that basis, and that's how we're going to do it. Now, there are no silver bullets in this, right? Everybody hearing me can see the problems with this. Of course you can. Everybody can see the problems with this. All I am saying is that you have a much, much better chance of doing it this way than you do by talking about no deal or any of the other ideas that other people are floating. There are basically two other ideas. There's no deal or there's I'm going to go back to Brussels and I'm going to negotiate a completely different deal. The truth of the matter is the answer lies in Parliament. And the person who can unlock Parliament is the person who can do this. What if the Citizens' Assembly doesn't support... I mean, the problem with the withdrawal agreement, is, it, it seems to me, is that it satisfies no one that uh, even Brexiteers say that it's objectively worse than staying in the European Union with a say. You're paying to kind of be restrained without any say at all over European agencies and how they work. Given that the whole debate has been both sides attacking the withdrawal agreement, what would make the public reach a different conclusion to the politicians? Well, I think the first thing is that very, very few people have actually read the withdrawal agreement. I mean, there are a lot of colleagues walking around carrying the withdrawal agreement with... It's a bit like um, when you hadn't done your, your homework. You pretended to go to page 323. They've, like, stuck a little sticker in somewhere, somewhere through the thing. It's an almost unreadable document. Good idea. If you, if you were to actually... <laughs> if you were to actually try to read... How, how many people in this room have read the withdrawal agreement? Tim! How many pages is Tim? I don't want to put Tim on the spot, but, but the point is that if, if the rest of you right, were to try to read the withdrawal agreement, what you would find is that even if you made it through the 500 pages, every paragraph refers to another European Union directive, another previous law. I mean, it's a completely incomprehensible mess. How many people in this room are really confident about what the customs union are? I mean, if I put you up on the stage and I quizzed you, 
on the details for customs union. How many of you are happy to do that with me? Right? Okay, this is important. This is really, really important. Okay? The, the point that I'm trying to make is that this is, you know, you're smart people, right? And this is the most important issue in British politics, and this has been going on for two and a half years. And we do not, either in Parliament or in the public, know enough about this. And the reason that I'm going to get this jury together, this citizens' jury together, is they are going to, over five weeks, get into the details of this in public, and you'll watch them do it. You'll watch them get into the details of the customs union, just as in Ireland, people watch them get into the details of abortion, something that everybody thought they understood, but they didn't really understand until people started going through it. And through that process, you will unlock, actually, I bet, we'll unlock Tory MPs who haven't voted for the deal, as well as Labour MPs. But if it's, if it's televised, it's going to become like Love Island, where <laughs> people are going to start rooting, they're going to want people removed, they're going to people start getting hate mail, other people are going to be, like, hot for a bit, and then not... Like, it's reality TV, plus jury duty, plus... I mean, that, but that, would that not be a real problem, that people would then start to get the sort of abuse that politicians get? It'll look like... Uh, I mean, it won't be quite as exciting as Love Island, right? <laughs> it'll, it, it will look a little bit like a series of parliamentary committees. It, it'll, <laughs> in effect, what will happen is these people will sit in Parliament uh, through the first three weeks of the August recess using our parliamentary committee rooms, and you will see them... Uh, taking evidence from experts, and uh, you know, you Matt will be watching every minute of it. Oh, but, will but, but it, 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 it may not, might not get every viewer in Britain. I, I mean, if uh, it's going to be properly uh, representative, you're going to have to have some weirdos. You're going to have to have you know, people who turn up with a wait. status dog on a chain. You're going to have to have like you know, Tim and people like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to have to have. But you would have to have, wouldn't you? It couldn't all just be people who look and feel like parliamentarians. You would have to have no, different... No, 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 no. The whole idea of this is that you, you start, as I say, by literally randomly selecting thousands out of the electoral roll, and then you divide them. So you end up, and this was true in Ireland, you end up with very, very unusual groups of people. But that's really important. It's very, very important. I mean, so, I mean, for a start, I mean, just to make the obvious point about... You know, more than 50% of the public do not have university degrees. So more than 50% of these people would not have university degrees. That's important, right? It's also important to understand that we're going to be realising what I think we all know, which is that this isn't actually about some uh, sort of amazing technical expertise. In the end, it's about judgement and common sense and values, right? It's about values. And... The reason you can trust the jury and the reason you can trust these people is that if you sit down and think about any of us, sit down and think about something properly guided for a few weeks, you come up with a smart answer. And they will come up with a smart answer. The problem with the parliament is we don't do that. Right? Tim and I haven't been sitting there eight hours a day for weeks taking evidence on this. Right? We have been acting like a lawmaking chamber saying no. And before the vote saying no, I had two people come up to me asking me what the difference was between a single market and a customs union. And that was about 10 minutes before the vote. And who were they? No, I mean, you know, I mean the, the, the point that I'm trying to make... Uh, what were they voting for in the end? Who were they voting for? They were voting in the um, indicative votes. 
Yendekrefetz. But, but I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this in order to try... Oh, sorry, which can I... Sorry. We're, we're no, saying, not, not, just, we're I suppose the point I'm trying to make is I'm not trying to... Um, this, this is important, right? I, I, I am obsessed with this stuff, right? I've spent months arguing for the Prime Minister's deal. I get in a muddle all the time. I have to be on the phone every week talking to people who are in Brussels, who are experts on this, to make sure that I'm not getting in a muddle. Right? This is difficult, difficult stuff. Right? I'll get it in my head that this is like Turkey, and then I will talk to a professor at the LSE who'll say, no, 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 Rory, you've completely misunderstood. This is about non-tariff barriers, or this is about rules of origin. I mean, this is not easy stuff. Right? And you have to be up to date all the time. It's, it's not reasonable to expect this kind of thing to be resolved um, easily in Parliament. Right? I, I can't do it. Uh, Tim may be able to, but I can't. Okay. You, you had a fascinating life before, before coming into politics, uh, including um, serving in Iraq, and not just serving in Iraq, but being the deputy governor of, a, uh, of one of the southern regions. You, you wrote a book about it, it became a play. Um, I mean, you, you, you were out there at a, an incredible period in the country's history. Uh, did that level of leadership, do you think, it, it, you know, for governing a, a turbulent tribal country equip you for um, <laughs> <laughs> standing in the Tory leadership election? Equip me for being in this room. <laughs> uh, I suppose there are two lessons I learned from that, and that is a completely different context to this, but the two lessons I learned from that is never ever be afraid to get everybody in the room right? and go out and meet them. Meet Farage, meet Leon McCluskey, I don't care. Right? You meet them, you talk, you argue. And the second thing is you don't have red lines. You don't have red lines. You're nimble, you're creative, you come up with solutions, you talk, you talk, you try things out. Get people together. You shake hands very quickly. Right? This is one few things that I felt that the Prime Minister was not very good at doing. Lisa Nandi would say, uh, I would be prepared to sign this deal if... Shake hands on public television. You've just said you're going to sign this deal. Right, we're signing this deal. Right? We, we are not nimble enough. We're not quick enough. We weren't quick enough. Sometimes I felt probably, maybe without being unkind in the European Union. We probably could have done things there. But that's, that's, that's finished now. But I think we can be much, much more nimble, much more creative in Parliament. You were, you were also, as well as serving in Afghanistan, you, you also, for a period, for a brief period, uh, tutored Prince William and Prince Harry uh, when you were at Oxford. Um, it's a remarkable experience for anyone to go through. Um, what were they like? I mean, what sort of era was that? Around the sort of mid-90s? Yeah, that was, I suppose, the early 90s, yeah. And how did you find them as students? Well, because I'm uh, a really, really massive Tory, I, I, I don't talk about the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great account in, in the, uh, the New Yorker did a profile on you in 2010 where they wondered if you would ever become Prime Minister, and obviously nine years later that, that may well happen. Um, where they said that there was, there was footage of you from a Jonathan Dimbleby uh, documentary about the Royals where you're playing football with William and Harry at the time of children and it says the footage shows you forcibly tackling a boy half your size. <laughs> this, is, this is something I learnt from Boris. 
Yeah. You're, you're, you're apparently known as someone who can, uh, one of the few people, apparently, and I wouldn't know, but one of the few people that um, can talk to the Prince of Wales and you have his ear. I mean, that would actually be quite an important skill for a Prime Minister to have, wouldn't it? I think you missed my point about my massive Toryness on this issue. Oh, I'll try and rephrase questions. That's, <laughs> that's the nature of it. But he's. Um, have, you, have you asked him for any political advice? I'm, I'm not. I'm somehow I'm not communicating this. <laughs> Let me try this again. I, I, I am uh, one of the things maybe that differentiates me from Jeremy Corbyn. Right, is I'm a m huge romantic about this country. I love the monarchy. I uh, love the armed forces, I love our countryside and landscape, our history, our traditions. I, and part of that is uh, about members of parliament not gossiping about the Prince of Wales over a, a glass of water. I, I don't think that's the only thing you haven't got in common, Jeremy Corbyn. A few other things. Um, the shoes, maybe, but uh, not the, uh, <laughs> the sort of Corbyn uh, bottom half. But uh, I, I guess, I guess, I guess what I was getting at was, you know, there was a big thing in the European election of the Queen apparently wanting to support Brexit. I well, well we're really not back on this again. But what I'm saying, okay, not as a question, maybe just as wondering aloud <laughs> if it might help your campaign to be seen as, you know, the, the candidate of the palace, the, 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 the Queen. Maybe that's how you get people like Tim and the No Dealers over. If you just sort of gently suggest that you've got the monarchy on side. You know, what, what I think I need, Matt, what, what is going to make this, I need you on side. Right? I need you endorsing me. That's it. <laughs> oh, I that... want to be Matt Ford's candidate. I want to... No. Oh, I, I mean, when I worked for the Labour Party, I think I lost every by-election that I um, advised the party in. So I'm not... I'd be the kiss of death, I'm afraid. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, I suppose, I suppose, you, you, I, I, I'm not pressing the royal thing, but maybe, maybe that's just. No, really? You know, I know, no, I, I think just, just get extraordinary. Out, I could have like thought you, I just kind of thought you were. Know, just yeah, say, yeah, look, yeah. this is the, I might be, I might be anti-Brexit, even though I'll deliver it, but you know, the, the Queen, you don't get more British or Tory than the monarchy, do you? That's, you know, that's your. Maybe Dame Edna, maybe I could get Dame Edna to endorse me. Dame Edna, yeah, I'm trying to think of other people. Yeah, yeah, I think Barry Humphreys, that's the way I'm going. <laughs> Definitely going. Definitely um, going. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, a yeah. unique experience at tutoring uh, William and Harry, who may or may not be supporting your leadership bid. Let's uh, <laughs> probably reach their own conclusions as to how <laughs> close the palace is. Um, in terms of the outgoing Prime Minister, and she is still Prime Minister, um, you've been seen as uh, one of the more loyal and one of the more supportive, one of the most, certainly on the media, one of the more supportive voices. Uh, not just of her deal, but, but perhaps of her. Uh, when you saw her um, resign the other day, um, did you find it emotional to watch her kind of break down like that? Yeah. I, I was, I think, yeah, I think this is true. I was the last cabinet minister with her on the bench mm -hmm. for the last probably 45 minutes of her final statement on Brexit. Mm -hmm. Everybody else had left. And I was sitting next to her and there were some whips, some who had been put on the front bench in order to pad it out. And um, I'm, my, I'm a steward, right? My family is committed to impossible loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so during that speech, um, when Prince Charles was texting you, what was he... <laughs> 
what was he saying? Um, <laughs> I'm just oh, obviously kidding. But, uh, I, I, with, 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 I, I just thought it was a very emotional thing watching. I, I, you know, even if I've never supported the, any of the Prime Ministers when they get emotional, I, I found it emotional when David Cameron's voice cracked. I found it emotional watching Theresa May. And obviously, there's a lot of people out there saying, well, she never shed any tears in public for all these other things. But... I find it quite distressing to watch a prime minister. She, 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 she was, but she was extraordinary. I mean, actually, on that bench with her, under all the pressure she was on, with nobody around her, she was still fighting to the last. I mean, and in real, with real parliamentary style. I mean, I don't think anyone noticed this, but she, she's usually, as you know, a relatively reserved person, but. I could see her suddenly going up and shouting across to Joanna Cherry on the SNP based benches. And actually being quite funny and punchy. And you know, I don't know how much sleep she must have got. I don't know what kind of tension she's been under. She's been putting heart and soul into her belief, which was my belief, that in the end, logically, people are going to have to see that this has got to get through Parliament. And logically, they're going to have to see that it's got to be a deal. And I just, I, I was just full of admiration for that. I, I hope if I become Prime Minister and I ever find myself in that position, I can carry myself with that kind of verve. But that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it, it's a, it, you, you would govern if Prime Minister in, in really divisive, quite aggressive, nasty times. I mean, do you feel emotionally equipped to deal with the pressures of the job? You know, would, would you... Find it hard. Or do you think it would necessarily be a bad thing to maybe show a bit more emotion in, in the role? That's an interesting thing. I, it's an interesting thing. I don't, I don't imagine people want to see much emotion from politicians. I think what they want to see, above all, is that you get things done. I think the, the problem, really, with politics is that we say... And let's take an example from today. To get, I'm trying to move on from the royal family, you might have noticed this. Um, <laughs> in order to get from Wigan, right, to Leeds, which is 55 miles, if you get on a train, it takes you an hour and 47 minutes. Right? It's insane. Completely insane. There are these amazing cities. You know, Warrington, which is full of advanced manufacturing. Leeds, which is one of our capitals of insurance. These places should be linked together. We announce HS3. And this thing is due to start, I believe, in 2035. And what is the point of this stuff? We need to get on with things. We need to get on with things. Right? So much of what happens in our lives, we could sort out tomorrow. Right? Literally tomorrow, I could abolish all hospital car parking charges, and I should. Right? Small things. Within four months, you could get 120 million more trees planted in this country. Use the single farm payment. Tell the farmers that in exchange for it, they have to plant 40 trees per hectare, a pound for a tube of steak and a tree. We could transform the landscape and the air quality and the carbon in this country. We can do things. Right? We can make schools better. We can make our hospitals better. But we have to get out of the habit of talking, 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 talking. And the way to do things is to focus on the particular problem in the particular place. Just it, it, the, the reason why it's important for us to be constituency MPs, the reason why I believe in a first-past-the-post system, is that it's when you're standing on the street and barking 
and you hear again and again and again that I do not feel safe here, right? I don't like going here at night. I don't like the amount of drugs. I don't see any police. My neighbor had her necklace ripped off her last week. Sort it out. Sort it out. This is the problem with the world we've gone into. We are not being serious enough. There are many, many problems in the United States, but one of the things that I felt serving alongside the US Army in Iraq and Afghanistan is that they tried to solve problems. They grabbed things. They went at them. And we used to be that kind of country. We can be that kind of country again. But that's what I want to do as Prime Minister. I don't want you to see me weeping on television. I don't want to see you uh, admiring the texts I receive from some grand uh, royalty or even from Matt Ford. <laughs> I, I Never publish you, those. <laughs> um, no, I want, you, I want you to judge me on the fact that I believe in this place and I believe it can be a so much better, so much happier country in 15 years' time than it is today. And we've got to break through some cynicism here because everything that I'm saying is going through film after film of cynicism and fear and despair and a Brexit maelstrom. And we've just got to, to get back to, to coming together and getting, getting stuff done. But that pragmatism also involves decisions elsewhere, does it? So if you say, you could abolish a hospital car parking charges tomorrow, I think most people would agree. Um, but that would mean taking money from elsewhere. So, or putting up taxes, or borrowing more. And then that's where you get into the politics of it. It's not that people don't want hospital car parking charges abolished, it's that when the money's tight, because of a political choice uh, of the party that you're a member of, then that's where you get forced into difficult decisions. So what, what is the Rory Stewart solution to, to funding these things? Well, the number one most important part of my economic policy is I am not going to deliver a no-deal Brexit. Right? That's the number one big thing you need to understand here. All these other programs, doesn't matter whether they're talking about cutting 5p off tax or they're talking about borrowing and they're talking about investment, they are starting with a no-deal Brexit. And a no-deal Brexit immediately puts you three to five points behind. A no-deal Brexit immediately makes it much more difficult to abolish hospital car parking charges, to sort out your education, do any of this stuff. So, no no-deal Brexit. Number two, after Brexit, if I can deliver a deal, there will be a flood of investment coming back into this country. Businesses are very uncertain. Investors are very uncertain at the moment. But you can unleash that. There will be economic growth. Number three, we have to show that we are sensible. We've spent 300 years developing a reputation for economic credibility in this country. And that's being shaken a little bit at the moment. We have to restore that. So we certainly do not want to be borrowing a huge amount of money for unfunded pledges. But can we find another £2 billion for schools? Yes, we definitely can. Can we issue green bonds to borrow for an asset like a house, to build houses? Could the government build 2 million houses? Yes, it could, because those things have value. Right? A house can be rented, a house can be sold. It's a good thing for the government to borrow to do. And by doing it, you would generate another kind of growth and you would solve another kind of problem, which is we don't have enough houses in this country and that has a huge impact on family life and young people and indeed the entire future of our cities. So there is an enormous amount that we can do immediately. But the big fact of it is that before you get into all the fiscal and technical policies of all these other candidates, just ask them, 
are you going to deliver a no-deal Brexit? Okay, well, let's take some questions from the audience. So, indicate clearly if you've got a question. Daisy will come around with a microphone. I can ask for a brief one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers. I'll try and get around as many people as we possibly can. So, is there anyone? Yes, the lady at the front. And let us know your name, please. Uh, I'm Claudia. Um, I'm really interested in your Citizens' Assembly. Having sat on a jury, I have been flabbergasted at some people's inability to listen and understand what happens in simple situations. What makes you think that people taken from all over society will be logical, reasoning, and open-minded and listen to something that's extremely complex? Okay, it's a very good challenge. I think um, there, are, there are two types of answer to that. Uh, one is that we live in a democracy, right, in which our entire political system is founded on the basic idea that one person's judgment, one person's vote, is exactly as valuable as yours. Right? Secondly, our entire jury system, our entire rule of law, is predicated on that same assumption. Now, it's true that we are different as individuals. We process information in different ways. I, I don't doubt that. You're, you're right, right. I don't doubt there will have been people on that jury that frustrated you. But I promise you that 99 citizens picked at random, properly supported and guided through this process, will come up with a better outcome, I'm afraid at the moment, than a polarised House of Commons. Even if the individuals in the House of Commons, as individuals, may have higher academic qualifications, may have had more experience in the world. The reality is that we are stuck. We're stuck because of the Constitution of Parliament, we're stuck because of our party system. And that this is a much more legitimate, much more creative way of unlocking this problem. Okay, is there anyone else in, in this section that would like to ask a question? I'll move over to, to this side of the room, if there's anyone there. Yes, there was a big hand in the air there. Hi, um, I'm also a steward, so I'm committed to loyalty. Very good. Um, my, my question is very simple. Um, there are 11 candidates for the leadership. Um, I think there was a political, well, there could be 12. Um, there, was a, um, there was a political um, uh, um, analyst today that openly said that he thought four, maybe three had a chance, and this, the other seven, and to use something that was said earlier on today, um, um, what's in it for me um, are actually going forward in order to take other um, uh, supporters going forward to support the main three. Um, I'm very interested, I am actually a chairman of a London association of the Conservative Party. <laughs> yes. And a Stuart. Um, this and is, a this Stuart. is very promising. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I am very well aware of what the members think. Right. Um, and I'm very disappointed um, with the kind of um, attitude of what's in it for me. Um, Sam earlier on said um, that it was a time that was, we all had to be committed to the country. And he also said that it was high stakes. Um, I'm not sure that seven people that don't have a chance confer that to the country. So what's your, I'm interested to know why you think so many people think that they could be Prime Minister and is it not wasting everybody's time? Um, well, I, you're going to a very, very, 
a very deep, dark question about our souls. I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. About uh, our souls. I, I'm afraid the. Re <laughs> um, No, the, 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 All the, 11 of them. The, the reality is, that when, I, when I came into Parliament, I remember saying to a friend of mine who was an ex-MP that uh, I thought that um, uh, probably, you know, 50 of my colleagues thought they should be Prime Minister, and he said, you're completely wrong, Rory. Out of 315 Conservative MPs, probably 300 of them <laughs> feel they should be Prime Minister. And, um, and there's a reason for that, because we know each other very well. We know our flaws and strengths very well. And therefore, and probably many of them will feel with some reason that they could have done a better job than, than some recent prime ministers. Uh, so it's, um, I mean, I, I know, I definitely know a lot of people felt that they could have done a better job, for example, than David Cameron. Uh, so why, why are we putting ourselves forward? It's somewhere between our enormous egos and, and uh, probably our mothers. <laughs> oh. oh, great answer. Uh, I think there was, a, there was a hand in the very back. Sorry to put it into in the most... I can't, the very back. I, can't, yeah. a, I think so. It's the lady right at the back. Apologies to revisit the um, Citizens' Assembly point that you made previously. Is the mic off? Yeah, sorry. Sorry. The, no, uh, to revisit the Citizens' Assembly point that you made previously, I'm just intrigued as to whether you can make an intellectual distinction between affording a representation of society true facts about Brexit. Is that different to a properly organised second referendum? And if not, why could you not support that? Well, so the fundamental difference between a referendum and a citizens' assembly is that a referendum is binary. It doesn't break it down into the details of the situation. So notoriously, it's very difficult to know, uh, to be certain when people voted for Brexit, exactly what type of Brexit they were voting for. The advantage of the citizens' assembly, and the same is true, but this is why I'm trying to use the analogy with abortion. Again, the way that abortion had been framed in the Irish debate is you were either for it or against it. Where it ended up, is setting week limits, right? Deciding how many weeks it was, it was appropriate uh, to do it in. And that's where the debate really is now in, in the British Parliament and in the Irish Parliament. In the case of the Brexit debate, the same is true, that you can't, in a referendum, ever get beyond its binary nature. You can't expect, uh, realistically, dealing with you know, 35 million people to make them go through the process that you can make a citizen's jury go through when they are properly supported by staff, they're taking expert testimony, they're locked in a room for three weeks. I mean, the, these, these are not, not comparable issues. And the kind of answer that you get out of the Citizens' Assembly will not be a remain leave answer. It'll be a much more nuanced, textured answer, which will be about the nature of the deal. But what if they... Citizens, somebody doesn't say that, and they say, "We want to remain in the UK, uh, in the EU, or we want to, or we want to leave with no deal." Um, well, you would have wasted four weeks. Um, but let me let me put, let me let me put this let me put this let me it? let me put this to you, Matt. That uh, we have to try something. 
right? We've got to try something to unblock Parliament. If all that happened at the end of this is you were right and I was wrong, I happen to believe they're going to come up with a nuanced, intelligent view on this. But if you're right... To remain. Yeah. If you're right and I'm wrong, if you're right and I'm wrong, that in the end this is just a proxy for the referendum, and all that you discover is that that Citizens' Assembly is as divided as the rest of the country is, and that half of them are for no deal and half of them are for remain. Uh, I, as Prime Minister, would have wasted three and a half, four weeks of your time. But I promise you, you're not going to be any worse off than you would have been if I hadn't tried it. OK. Is there anyone on the balcony that likes to ask a question? Just yelp if you can, because I can't see you. No. Is there one up there? Yes? Hello there. All right. I'll oh, see so you're not on the balcony. No, but I forgot before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. I you forgot you weren't on the balcony. If anyone on the balcony would like this question, you can just yelp. Okay. So the final question of the night goes to uh, the wonderful opportunity at the back. We're going to get the. Just uh, <laughs> pop your hand up and we'll get the microphone over to you. Let us know your name. A one sentence question, a one sentence answer, and then we can finally let Rory go. Here we go. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. Um, Say. So there are 11 slash 12 people who are interested in this position. Um, obviously, I couldn't possibly ask you, because you won't answer, uh, if, there end up, if there ends up being two of you who you think the other person will be. So, in a very Radio 4 Desert Islandists way, I'm going to say, if you had to take Matt Ford and two other people who are part of the 11 slash 12 onto an island, who would the other two be? <laughs> Presuming I want to go. <laughs> Do I get a say? I mean, I would. It'd be a laugh, but... So it's me, you, and then three others. Two others. So who's in, who's in this debate? Uh, who's in this race that I want to spend, spend a lot of time on a desert island with? Um, the rest of your life. <laughs> the rest of my life. The rest of your life. We're marooned on a desert island forever. The rest, rest, rest of my life. Me, maybe. you. Rest of the life, me, me and you, that's pretty good. Good, good start. Um, so, gosh, it's, that's interesting. Probably, probably the answer is the people you want on the desert island with you are, are, are probably not going to be the front runners. Um, I, I, I think James Cleverly could be pretty useful on a desert island. I'm okay. happy to have James on a desert island with me. I'm going to say, so far, three chaps. <laughs> That's, that's, a, that's a really good, really good and important observation. Uh, so I, I obviously have to say Penny Mordant as my, as my. So you got my, a crush on Penny Mordant. That's, that's, that's an exclusive. Uh, <laughs> um, let, let, let me finish by saying one thing, and, and actually thank you very much for coming. I've been a little bit sort of grim and serious today, and that's partly because uh, I am in full-out leadership campaign, and I've just spent I think 14, 15 hours. Uh, Getting from Wigan to Leeds. <laughs> Getting from Wigan to Leeds. Um, no, this guy's quite funny. He's a funny guy. I like, I like him. He's going to be good on the desk. Um, uh, but I suppose the main thing that I'm not expressing, which is absolutely central to what I believe about leadership, what I believe about running a country, is that if I'm to be any good as a prime minister, I've actually got to spend less time talking at you, less time being dogmatic, less time pretending I have the answers to all these questions. I don't. This is a very, very complicated country. 
actually the people who obviously know best about what's happening in Warrington is not me reciting some facts about the train timetable. It's the people who live in Warrington. And the people who know best about every area of your lives, it's not me, and I, that's why I feel a little bit... In retrospect, I shouldn't have responded to that question about juries in the way that I did. Right? I haven't been on a jury. I've experienced a jury. I should listen more and not push back. The, the, the temptation as a politician is to swagger around, sounding as though you have the answer to everything, pushing back, arguing back. And we're all quite good at that, right? We're quite good at arguing. But that's a form, actually, of pomposity. Done wrong, it's a form of bullying. And that actually, really, the way that we're going to get this country going again is through a little bit more humility. Thank you very much, Nid. Good night. Oh, my word. Well, Rory, what an amazing... <laughs> So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for coming along tonight. Next month's guest is Keir Starmer. Uh, Ken Clark will be here in September. Um, we've had, of course, tonight we've had the wonderful uh, Sam Gimmer, but give it up uh, for uh, our two guests this evening. Firstly, Mr. Tim Lawton. <laughs> and what a spe uh, we, you know, we, uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the audience. Amazing to have a, a Tory leadership candidate here tonight at the start of the race. Um, I think whether we're conservatives or not, I'm sure a lot of what you said tonight has really resonated with people, and I think there's a lot of goodwill for you in this contest. Ladies and gentlemen, Rory Stewart! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There you go, Sam Gimber and Rory Stewart. What a fascinating pair of conversations. Um, both really warm people. You just get the sense that this modern era has um, let them down a bit. And you can't help but feel whether you, and that's not a Brexit or a or a left right thing. It's just there are politicians in there who would rather things were done differently and in a different tone. Um, so it's just fascinating to talk to them, particularly at this stage. And who knows how the Tory leadership contest is going to go? Um, and who knows whether Sam will start by the time you're listening to this. Sam may have ruled himself in or out, but I'm claiming that as an exclusive either way. Either he ruled himself in or he ruled himself out of my show. Uh, and with Rory, I mean, you get a real sense of someone completely frustrated by his own party and by the body politic. So who knows whether he can harness that early impetus, whether that that curiosity about him, whether that novelty factor can sustain when it comes up against Gove or Boris or someone else, or whether, like Sam was saying, he would stand to kind of change the tone of the contest who knows what happens? Um, well, it's all so fascinating. They were both brilliant guests. Um, my next guest at the live show is Keir Starmer. Ken Clark will now do the show in September, so that's very exciting. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And yes, my new brand new show, which I'm currently writing, is Brexit Pursued by a Bear at the Edinburgh Festival from the 31st of July to the 25th of August. As always, thank you so much for listening to this. If you can share it, please do. If you can leave an iTunes review, that really helps. Um, if you haven't already, hit subscribe but yes keep spreading the word um and thank you very much see you soon